Our God, Lord of creation, Father of the faithful, the one who gives us life and breath and strength, the one in whom there is joy and hope and peace. We come to you today because we are in need of all of those things. Father, we are buffeted about by the cares of this life and by the struggles we have with our own nature. And we're grateful for your mercy and grace. And we look to you today to be here with us, to speak to us individually as well as corporately from your word. And Father, to make it a, a truth that we not only assent to, but which we live by. God bless each one. You know our needs here today. Each one has a different set of needs. And I pray you will meet those needs and in so doing, glorify yourself and create in us a more highly polished mirror to reflect your glory to our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, to all those that are around us. Father, I thank you for your presence, for your promises, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 14. I would like to read the first five verses. Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. By the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and the half-tribe, for Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they did not give a portion to the Levites in the land except cities to live in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their property. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they divided the land. I hope by now uh, that you're very well familiar with the fact that often in Scripture there are summary statements made ahead of the time of the actual then description of the event itself. And, and in this passage I just read this morning, there are several things stated in a way as if they had already happened when, of course, we haven't actually read about that happening yet. For example, the giving of the Levite cities within the land. We haven't come to the record of that uh, in the book of Joshua. And so what, what we have is a, is a summary thing. And Scripture does this all the time. But scripture is constantly summarizing. <laughs> and the reason for that is that we need that to see how it all fits together. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, people who try to force this whole thing into a literal mold of, you know, this verse has to come before this verse, which has to come before this verse, chronologically, don't understand the way the Hebrews think and write, because it is not that way. And, and, and that's why some errors are made in terms of interpretation and, and accusations are made of the Scripture being in error, because how could this happen here when it hasn't happened yet, or, you know, whatever. And, and that is not at all what it is saying. So a scripture needs to be interpreted within the framework of the Hebrew uh, style of thinking. Well, in this passage we see that God had commanded Israel through Moses to apportion the promised land amongst the 12 tribes. And, and the ones who were to carry out this apportionment were Joshua, the leader of all Israel, Eliezer, the high priest, and then the tribal leaders, the clan heads, were to be involved in this apportionment, this allotment. 
And what is interesting is we find from Scripture that whatever piece of land was given to the tribe was to be held by that tribe in perpetuity. It wasn't kind of like, well, we don't like our piece of land, so let's bargain with the neighbors and switch land. No, it's not how it was to happen. And, and we know by now, I trust, that nine and a half tribes were to be given an allotment in Canaan itself, meaning west of the Jordan River, okay? Whereas two and a half tribes had already been given an allotment east of the Jordan River in what I have generally called Transjordan, across the Jordan. The Levites will be given, and we'll note that as we get later in the, in the book, uh, 48 cities which will be scattered. And, and this particular map which I have uh, sent around to you this morning is a map that we'll be using through many of these chapters now. It's, it's, it's not uh, terribly detailed, but at least you get the idea here. These are more or less the believed boundaries of the tribal regions and then the locations of the Levitical cities with the six cities of refuge being specifically noted. And we'll be talking about those in more detail later on. Now, the tribal borders are somewhat questionable in some cases. And, and you'll look at different atlases and you'll find the lines are not always the same. Because, as we'll see, the descriptions given in Scripture are hard to follow, except in certain cases. You can't miss the Mediterranean Sea, right? Well, it's right there. And you can't miss the Dead Sea. You can't miss the Jordan River. But when it says, from this little village to this village, to the rock of so-and-so over here, to the oak tree over there, you know, it really becomes difficult to, to exactly trace that line today. But these are at least approximate borders. And, and then I'll be saying something else later on that indicates that these borders were kind of fluid anyway. There was kind of a osmosis across the borders that would take place. The Levites were separated from the other tribes, and we know this uh, from our study before. And they would be scattered amongst the 12 tribes. And when we get to the actual discussion of that, I'll, I'll discuss one of the reasons or some of the reasons, I think, why God did that. But in so doing, of course, if you take one of the tribes and you, and you separate it from the others, this quote makes 11 tribes, right, instead of 12. But in this passage and in earlier passages that we've studied in other books, we know that the tribe of Joseph was split into two tribes named after Joseph's two sons, Manasseh the eldest son and Ephraim the younger son. And therefore, by splitting one into two, you have 12 still tribes, not counting Levi as then amongst the 12. Now, it was still a tribe, but it wasn't counted as one of the 12 with a capital T. The Levites would be scattered through all of the others, and, and you see that as you look at this. I'm pretty sure that you'll find that there is a Levitical city in every single one of the uh, tribal domains, plus multiple ones in some. And so the Levites were scattered amongst all the other 12 tribes, and they would continue to carry out their priestly function, which meant, of course, that obviously the tabernacle would be in one place, and, and they might be living in a town that's 100 miles from the tabernacle, so how in the world could they carry out priestly function? Well, what they basically did was uh, simply divide the Levitical group into like monthly increments. And you would go to the tabernacle and you'd live there and serve there for a month and you'd go home for the other 11 months and take care of things at home. So you weren't have to trot back and forth, you know, like we commute to work every day, you know, five days a week. No, no, it, it, wouldn't it be nice if you went to work one month out of the year and then you stayed home for the other 11? <laughs> no? <laughs> I guess not. 
let's read the next section here in chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in, in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made, made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and, behold, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now, for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. The headquarters of Israel, all the way up until the final allotment of the land, was still down at Gilgal, not far from Jericho in the Jordan Valley. The tribe of Judah came to Joshua to receive its allotment. And when they did so, the person of Caleb made a special request. He reminded Joshua that he alone had stood with Joshua against the other ten, tri uh, ten spies at Kadesh Barnea those 45 or so years ago. From Caleb's statement in this passage, we can discover approximately the time required for the conquest to take place. Because we discover, he says, in effect, that he was 40 years old when he was a spy. Okay? He says now he is 85. Well, if my higher mathematics still works, <laughs> that's 45 years difference. And we know that the invasion of uh, Transjordan began approximately 38 years after the spies had gone into the land. And so that would make 78. 78 from 85 gives you seven years. Seven years uh, for the conquest to take place, at least up to this moment that Joshua is, is asking for that mountain. The most important part of this passage and, and the statement which I underlined in this passage is the statement that Caleb makes, that against all opposition, he said, I followed the Lord my God fully. I followed Yahweh my Elohim fully. Now, we've got to avoid looking at that and saying, aha, a man with a halo. <laughs> you know, nobody has a halo. You know, a halo is a human invention. It has nothing to do with reality. Nobody, you know, this, this little halo gizmo up here, which means you're faultless in effect. Caleb was not faultless, and he would have probably been the first to admit it. But fully, following God fully meant that he heard the word of the Lord and he strived in God's strength to obey. That's what it means. 
It doesn't mean he always did it perfectly. It doesn't mean he didn't lose his cool now and then. It doesn't mean he didn't do other things that we would know from the scripture to be sin. We all sin. Every day we sin. Caleb was a strong man of action. I think we get that feeling as we read this particular scripture. But we also get the sense that everything he did was in accordance with the word of God as he understood God's word. So he was a man of obedience. Now, if you take a man of strength and add to it a man of obedience, you, you have someone to set up as a model. He didn't obey God only with his lips, but he obeyed God also with his life. And of course, that is the greater testimony. You and I today all the time are hearing people on the radio, TV, wherever, uh, testifying to God with their lips. But sometimes you discover that their life is somewhere far from what their lips are saying. What better epitaph could you imagine on your tombstone than he or she followed the Lord, his or her God fully? Wouldn't that be great? What, what better thing could you have on your tombstone? He followed the Lord his God fully. Now, what is interesting is that Paul basically says the same thing, but he's, he's just a little bit more detailed in his statement. Let me read from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is, in effect, saying this, but he's spelling out what obeying the Lord God fully, following the Lord God fully means. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You know, a lot, you, every once in a while you hear somebody saying, keep the faith, baby. <laughs> Well, if they really knew the real context of, of that, uh, they would know they were saying something. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing, to the Joshuas, the Calebs, the Moses, the Esthers, the Nehemiahs, to all of these individuals, they too, will receive the reward at his appearing. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's what Caleb is saying. And literally, of course, he has fought a fight. He fought a fight against the ten spies. You know from just hearing about our jury system in this country, how many times a jury will be divided on an issue, but it's like ten to two, like it was amongst the spies, but the other ten will eventually harass the other two until they assent to give a, a full agreement. Because you don't like being in a minority. You don't like being the only one who's against everybody else. And, but Joshua and Caleb were willing to hold that position in spite of the fact that meant being censured in the minds of virtually the entire congregation of Israel. We, we find in this passage that Caleb is not only going to be rewarded in, in eternity for what he has done, but he is rewarded in this life. God had already given the word through Moses that the land which Caleb had entered would be his inheritance here in this life. Now his claim as he comes before Joshua is certainly based on statements that had been made by Moses earlier. Let me read from Numbers chapter 14 at verse 20. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Moses had interceded for the people. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, 
nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, notice how many times that word keeps showing up, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. And I think this is more than a generic statement. He's just not saying, I'm going to give him something inside of Canaan. I think he's being specific about what part of Canaan. Let's turn further to Deuteronomy, the first chapter, verse 34. Deuteronomy 1:34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he followed the Lord fully. What a guy. I think what this is telling us is that the portion of Canaan which Caleb reconnoitered was the Hebron area. I think that was the area that he was primarily responsible for. The area that he checked out. The area that he traveled through. The area that, you know, got down behind the hill with his spyglass, you know, and his night goggles and checked the whole place out and came back. And, and what, is the, what was it? One of the most threatening places in the whole country to study. Because there were big guys there in, in, in Hebron. The reward for his faithfulness in standing alongside Joshua in front of the entire nation of Israel there at Kadesh Barnea was to be given the land he had actually walked on as a spy. As I looked at this, I thought, what a piece of land to claim. What a piece. Because if Israel had any heritage in Canaan, it was here. Because this is where Sarah died. And because Sarah died there, Abraham bought a piece of land to bury Sarah called the Cave of Machpelah. And on top of that, he is buried there. And since Abraham and Sarah were buried there, Isaac and Rebekah were buried there, and Jacob and Leah were buried there. I mean, what more heritage can you have? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their three wonderful wives, all buried in the same place. What, what could be more a focus for, for the nation of Israel? Often when, when, when the scripture talks about the inheritance of Israel refers to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That does not mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were more favored by God than anybody else. It's just that they were faithful men whom God used to be the patriarchs of the tribe. And so this is the very place that Caleb claims. I think if I'd have been an Israel, Israeli there, or Israelite, I, I should say, some people are offended by using the term Israeli, uh, at this point because hey, that's the modern Joes. Well, whatever the case was, they were Israelis and Israelites, children of Abraham, whatever term you want to use here. I'd, I'd have been jealous. Whoa, Caleb's getting the good place. Of course, when you saw the city and you saw these 10-foot guys walking around, you might, well, maybe it's okay. He could claim it. I'll, I'll take this place over here where there aren't any cities. What is amazing further about this passage is that Caleb testifies that at 85, he was every whit as strong as he was at 40. Now, does that testify to a Mediterranean diet or what? <laughs> they're, they're arguing again now, you know. <laughs> Whenever anybody comes out and says, this is really helpful, somebody else comes out with a new study that says, I don't really think so, you know. And, but there's a certain logic, you know. I think if you follow a logic, 
that you cut through a lot of this baloney and all these, uh, well, not all these, but some of these studies which are, which are done because, you know, it's just logical that if you eat good healthy grain and good healthy fruits and vegetables and, and this kind of stuff, it's got to be good for you because that's the way God made it in the Garden of Eden. You know, in the Garden of Eden you weren't eating Big Macs or pizzas or anything like that, you know. You ate what grew on the trees and grew out of the ground, the nuts and the fruits. <laughs> so where, where, where does strength come from? Strength come, came from the Lord. Strength came from the Lord. Does that mean that every one of us will be as strong at 85 as we were at 40? Well, not necessarily, but hopefully in our spirits we'll be stronger. Because as Paul says, the, old, the body on the outside gets kind of older and older and worn down, but the spirit is renewed every day. Caleb asked for the high point of the hill country that had been allotted to Judah. He asked, you imagine this, he asked for the right to capture the most frightening city in the entire land. Because not only was it high, it was fortified, and there lived the Anakim, the most feared people in the whole land. The very people that struck fear into the heart of the other ten spies, and they said, yeah, it's a great land, lots of lovely fruits and vegetables there, but there are giants there. And we are grasshoppers in their sight, and we are as grasshoppers in our own sight compared to them. So, I mean, talk about walking right into the teeth of the enemy. This is what Caleb was requesting. Now, think about it. Caleb was 85. He'd have been 20 years on Social Security already. <laughs> was he ready to retire? Not quite. Reminds me almost a little bit of my, my grandparents. My grandparents were that way. I mean, they were 75. They didn't even think about retiring. They were still going strong until a heart attack flattened my grandfather. But uh, they were both working full time, 75. And I think they'd have hung on until they dropped dead if uh, God hadn't told them to stop, think about me for a little while, spend a little time focusing on me. And, and, and that happened. The heart attack literally saved my grandfather's life because that's when he really turned to the Lord at 75 years of age. Caleb did not bask in the glory of his past faithfulness. Instead, he plunged forward into a new challenge for his God. I mean, that, that, that in itself is a challenge to us, I hope. Every once in a while, I think, mm, I'm ready to just you know, back out of all of this and <laughs> go sit in a nice quiet porch someplace and watch the birds fly by or something, you know. But, but, but God has a plan for us as long as we still have breath. <coughs> We serve Him in some way as long as we have breath. And even if we are incapacitated in some way, we still can serve Him through certainly the most powerful means of serving God, which is prayer. I mean, anybody that still has his or her faculties can at least do that. And that is probably the most important thing that we can, can do. So, so Caleb literally took God at His word. Because God had said through Moses, I am a consuming fire and I will go before you and I will drive out the Canaanites. And Caleb is saying, oh God, okay, God, let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready to take on this stronghold on this mountain where the giants are concentrated, the Anakim. Well, that's taking God at his, at his word. That's putting it right on the line. But of course, he knew he was operating on the basis of a promise a promise of victory, and no matter how impossible this task might seem, he would have the victory. And really, that was true for all of Israel. 
Because what was Israel? A bunch of nomads. What did they know about conquering uh, you know, civilized regions with mighty walls and iron chariots and prepared armies and all of the rest? What did they know about that? Nothing. That's why God said he would do it. I, I, you know, I, I can't help but believe that Caleb reveled in the fact that here he was, 85 years old, leading an army, capturing a city and wiping out the giants. Most of us are familiar with Paul's prayer. Uh, Paul, because he had a vision of glory, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And, of course, to this day, people have been arguing what that, what that thorn was. But he asked the Lord to remove the thorn, and God, of course, responded to him. And, and then with divinely inspired insight, Paul provided for us encouragement when we feel too weak to deal with our Anakim. And every one of us faces Anakim in our lives. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where this incident is recorded and God's response is recorded and Paul's response is recorded. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. Well, let me, let me back up to uh, verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And you can just imagine all the different kinds of theological statements, inter interpretations which are made about that. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what's so interesting about Christianity. Everything that is the reverse of what we think as the natural human way is the way it ought to be. We tend in the world to be led by leaders who exhibit strength and arrogance and uh, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, charisma. And yet God says it is the reverse. Because the very God of the universe who possessed it all came down and became a baby, not in a palace, but of a little teenager who, who was dwelling in a little town because they had to go be counted for Roman imperial census, you know. And it got chased to Egypt and lived in a no place called Nazareth. So who are we to exalt ourselves? You know, it's, it's true. It's, it's human nature. We all of us complain about our problems, our, our persecutions and our insults and our illnesses and all of these things that come upon us. And, you know, it's, it's, you know we're, we're bound to do that. But, but Paul says he glories in that. You know, that, that seems to be really opposite of what our nature is. I'm so glad I'm sick. You know, that doesn't sound like something we're likely to do or say. But because when we are weak, God is strong through us. Because then we know I can't do it myself. You know, one of the first things we learn as a child is, one of the first things we say as a child is, I want to do it myself. And, you know, we spend the rest of our lives saying that. And God is saying, no, because if you do it yourself, it's going to be a mess. Let me do it through you. Humility is a, is a very, very difficult attribute to gain. 
because it's absolutely foreign to human nature. Absolutely foreign. Well, let's read on here in Joshua. Well, you know, you can be humble and strong at the same time, and that's what Joshua was and, and Caleb. Humble and strong all at once. That's what Jesus was. Powerful but humble. Last two verses of chapter 14, last three verses of chapter 14. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord his God, the Lord, the God of Israel, fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. <laughs> Again, when I read these things, I always think, what was it really like to be there? Would have been wonderful to stand there with your video camera and video Joshua talking to Caleb. I think it was a moment of great emotion. There was something between Joshua and Caleb that was unequaled probably between two and any two other men throughout the whole Israelite camp. They had joined forces shoulder to shoulder and stood with Moses and Aaron against the entire two million Israelites. Now talk about a minority. Four against two million. That's a minority. These four alone had in effect stood before all of the forces of hell which were moving through the Israelite people saying, we can't do this, let's go back to Egypt, let's make a new leader, let's stone Moses, all these kinds of things which were not God's thoughts. They were the thoughts coming from the destroyer. And they had stood together in the Lord's strength. Was there fear in their hearts? Well, if they were human, there must have been. Their knees might have quivered a little, but they were strong in God's strength and they were not about to move. Spiritual brothers and sisters who have stood together through fiery tribulation, through all the efforts of Satan to destroy them and God's work, I think know a closeness in their relationship that is closer than most other human relationships. There is a spiritual brotherhood there, and I think Joshua and Caleb, I mean, there was, there was a magnetism between those two men because of what they had been through together. And each knew personally who their God was. So there was an emotion there that was deep and strong. I think it was partly the strength in Caleb's voice. He says, give me that mountain and the fire in his eyes that convinced Joshua to give his dear friend that which he asked for, and to have confidence that God will enable him to have the victory. I think what is interesting here is that uh, verse 15 provides a little footnote here. Verse 15 says, Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Kiriath means city or town, settled place. And Arba, of course, was the name of a clan chief. Arba was a descendant of Anak. And he was at that time, or in the general time period, Arba was certainly himself not alive at this time. But his name rang all through Canaan as the mightiest man in the land. And so this was the city of Arba, the home of the Anakim in Canaan. And all the other Anakim radiated out from this center of Anakim power. The name Hebron means confederation or association. 
And of course, that's the name that will be attached to it. From the time of the uh, Israelite conquest on, it will no longer be called Kiriath Arba. <laughs> you know, it's not the city of Arba anymore because Arba and his group have, go have been gone, driven out. It will be the city of the Confederacy, the city of the Association. And certainly that refers back to the day when Abram joined forces with the sons of Heth. And they made an agreement together, a mutual defense pact there at the Oaks of Mamre. It says in there that uh, Ab Abram made this, this alliance with the sons of Heth there, a confederation there. And it was in that confederation strength that they were able to do battle. They had made this agreement for mutual defense. And so the city becomes named after this alliance, this confederation that had been made up there. Today, if you go to the city of Hebron, you'll find that in the middle of the city of Hebron, it was not in the middle of the city at the days we're talking about here. Uh, the Oaks, uh, the uh, Oaks of Mamre, the uh, Cave of Machpelah were outside the walls, but now it is inside the city of Hebron. If you go there, you'll, decide, you'll discover that there is a shrine. It's known as Haram el-Khalil, which means the enclosure of the friend. Scripture says that Abraham was the friend of God. And that enclosure stands over what is said to be the cave of Machpelah. Word Machpelah means double cave. And so over this double cave which Abraham had bought, in which he buried Sarah, in which he is buried, and his son and his grandson and their wives are buried, this, this structure stands over that place today, it is believed. Now, in the days of Jesus, there was a king in Israel whose name was Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great built a lot of things, and he had a very specific style of architecture. And if you look at the Haram el-Khalil, you'll discover it is Herodian in nature, the structure. And so we know that that is the site that in Jesus' day was believed to be the Cave of Machpelah 2,000 years ago. And so it certainly has the best chance of being that real place. Hebron is a city located about 3,000 feet above sea level, the highest city in all of Canaan, located about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. It was that city that Caleb asked permission to take. And that whole countryside then became part of his possession. The very last sentence, to, to finish this chapter, the very last sentence in that uh, 15th verse says that peace came to the land. War ceased and peace came to the land. Because of Israel's disobedience, the peace will be only temporary, but it does give them time to put roots down in the land and to actually live for a while in the promised land. And then, of course, you're probably all aware of the fact that the book of Joshua is followed by the book of Judges. And that is the story of their dwelling in the promised land. And it's pretty rocky time. Well, we'll pick up with the 15th chapter next Sunday.